0: You are listening to Banachek's Brain. Philosophy, psychology, science, and skepticism. All from the world's greatest mentalist, Banachek. Hi
1: everybody, thank you for tuning in to Banachek's Brain. I'm Tyus. I am Banachek. And, uh, and we're back, doing yeah. more of the same in pandemic world. This is the only time I see you now. Uh, yeah. Is that a complaint?
0: Well, no, it's just that you're now with other performers and never with me.
1: I'm with you all the time. Never. I saw you last night.
0: Plain squash. Yes. Yeah, kicking my butt.
1: Kick everybody As butt. usual. <laughs>
0: he's got he's got a wicked serve, like a wicked wicked serve. Right. So so he gets a serve past you, and then you can't hit back at that point. You got to learn to hit his serve.
1: It's it's all it's all I got going for me, man. Yeah, I'm learning that. And you, you yeah. in my world? Yeah, all right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> squash. So, squash, squash, squash. Yeah. Can you
0: wager on we, this? We actually have a friend in town. He's got the only squash court in his basement's basement.
2: Yeah. He has a squash court in, in his basement. the basement in the of basement. the basement. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. I think there's only, what, how many squash courts in Town Tide? Three? Two, two, like two or that. three? That's it. And he has one.
1: Yeah, so he attracts all these people over because
2: how odd. Okay. Yeah,
0: we do squash and then we do whiskey afterwards. So
2: squash and whiskey. Yeah. The Banachek biathlon. Yeah, so got... uh, if people are curious, <laughs> who this mysterious voice? Oh is yeah, yeah. Is yeah. yeah. Into... hello. <laughs> you have to guess. This is what's my line. Oh, is that <laughs> it? Banachek's version of what's my line.
0: Oh, thanks. Yeah, I'm telling, <laughs> I'm... I'm telling my age here, right? Yeah.
1: And, and mine too. Like it. Actually,
0: it's funny. Chris Angel was calling me for a while the grandpa of mentalism.
1: Oh, the grandfather of I was mentalism. Like,
0: really? Thank you. You're like just a few years younger than me. Really?
2: So you're going to be the of He's my age. <laughs> well, I think I'm a couple years older than Chris. We're right. about in the same age division. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we're well, the moment kind I of said
0: I'm going to start calling you the grandpa of illusionists, Stop.
1: Ah! <laughs> <He stopped. laughs> so we have the the amazing Johnny Katz in studio. So thanks, thanks for having you. me. Thanks yep. for being here. For thanks. those people out of Vegas who don't know who Johnny Katz is... Uh so Johnny Cats uh is a staple of Las Vegas. Uh pretty much if you go to an event here, uh Johnny is there. Uh, That's all it, right. <laughs> it's 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 basically a guarantee. Uh now you you've been a, a reporter in multiple regards not just entertainment before that you were doing sports. sports. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I know nothing about besides squash.
2: I, I, I've never covered squash, I can tell you that. <laughs> but I was a sports writer uh, for a long time, and that's what brought me to Las Vegas, originally. my original position. When was that? In, uh, I moved here in 96, and for uh, about 12 years before that, I was a sports writer in Northern California for... Um, in my hometown in Chico, California, and then in Redding, California, Chico. Yeah. up there. That's where my, in my, my, kind right. of my second hometown is Chico, and that's where I got my first newspaper job. So I was doing sports up in there, and then I got uh, hired at the uh, Review Journal at the time to cover UNLV basketball and uh, opening of the Las Vegas Motor Speedway. You remember those days, yeah, yeah, and uh, so those were my primary beats. And uh, I spent a couple years doing that for the RJ, and then uh, moved over to the Greenspun Media Group in Las Vegas Sun, where I didn't do any sports. And then I haven't been a sports writer since then, since '98, but I still, you know, I cover everything, so I cover sports as part of everything. Do you miss sports? Um, I uh, it's interesting when you consider. Uh, covering something you love so much. I, I, really enjoy sports, but it doesn't mean that I, I should be covering them full time. You know, it's like that old saying about the pizza restaurant. I love pizza too much to work at a pizzeria. Um, I, uh, that's how it was with me in sports. I like, I like going in and covering it in the way I do now more than I did at the time. Covering UNLV's basketball team as a beat was really a grind for me. I, can imagine, I, I wasn't yeah. really suited for that, uh, at the time. And, uh, but I, uh, I don't miss uh, the events. I go to when the Golden Knights have been going. I, I go to several games a year. I will be going to the Raiders. I go to boxing and UFC and, and the the major events here. Has been out the Speedway for a few races. But, yeah. Because
0: really, as an entertainment writer, that is entertainment too, right? I mean, yeah, it, it fits.
2: Yeah, the one of the more recent columns I, I wrote before uh, before we were in. Uh, uh, in the situation we're in now, was uh, I talked to Derek Stevens at the D Las Vegas, and uh, you know, in, in some of the initiatives that he's bringing into his uh, to the D and also to Circa is a blend of sports and entertainment. Sports and entertainment are as one in that paradigm and i think that's right you know i asked where his where his entertainment venue is and he says well our sports book has two levels and uh, has a thousand capacity and we we consider that an entertainment amenity so what
0: would he put in there i mean would it be
2: fighting or what would it be he well uh sports wagering it wouldn't be live events, oh, but it'd be live. wagering, and it would be um, you know uh, hosted events, watch parties, and that kind of thing. And then out at the pool, you'd have entertainment mixed in with with uh, with the sports right. uh, on on the screens outside too. Okay. So it's always blended in. Yeah, but so it's mostly watch parties, and that's what they consider their.
0: So when you transition over, what was the who was the first person you interviewed? Do you do you remember that? Which entertainer?
2: When uh, when I started, when
0: you went from sports and went
2: into the entertainment. Um, I don't know who the first one would have been. Who well, the first days. one is
1: is going to be super offended. Yeah, right. uh, <laughs> no. I, let me
2: answer this right because it was you know I had it. I didn't go directly from sports into full time entertainment. I was doing general feature writing, so I would say one of the earliest. Um, you know, there are a couple that spring out. One of the earliest important interviews I did of a of a name celebrity was Wayne Newton. Yeah, I had i spent some time uh, with Wayne. Uh, Right when I started focusing on entertainment I don't know if he was the very first one Another one was Bill Acosta over at the Luxor Oh,
1: I'm good friends Uh, with the family
2: Yeah, Bill, uh, it happened to be He was over at the Luxor And that was one of the first times I was It's the first time I can really remember being uh, Backstage and hanging out And feeling like I had a VIP experience I was about 99 Both those guys were 99 And then Wayne was involved in uh, His uh, contract at the uh, Stardust had been announced and uh, I had known his family. I just started to know his family at that time through another story I was writing about a lawsuit that he had with Tony Orlando and Branson, Michigan and Branson, uh, Missouri. Yeah. I know Tony well. Yeah. Okay. Well they were, they had, this is how this whole thing helped this story and this relationship was really how things sort of started for me. And it, it was a, a lawsuit that involved Tony and Wayne in a theater that they were co leasing in Branson. It was called The Talk of the Town, T O W N, Tony Orlando, Wayne Newton. And Wayne, if I, I, I remember right, Wayne, Wayne was a main leaseholder and, and Tony was sub-leasing his end of the deal and they were filling the dates together. There was a dispute about, a financial dispute about who owed who money and there was, you know, uh, some disagreement legally between the two. Who have since uh, made up more recently, and uh, I started covering this, and I didn't. I wasn't working on it because I chose to. I was assigned to cover the Newton Orlando uh, lawsuit in Branson. So in Las Vegas, they didn't send me to Branson to report this thing. Everything was on the phone. Everything was talking to John Orlando, talking to – I don't think I ever talked to, actually directly to Tony, but um, to John and Trisha McCrone, Wayne's sister-in-law, was handling his end of, end of the communication. And eventually inter- interviewed Wayne about it, had all these documents, and wrote a story about the, the, the crisscrossing lawsuits. There was a, a suit and a cross uh, action in this thing. I think Tony sued Wayne, Wayne sued back. And it was, you know, it got to the point where it was like, you know, they were accusing Marilyn McCrone, who's uh, Wayne's mother-in-law, of hiding a bug in a ficus plant to surveil Tony Orlando. This was the kind of story it was. It was weird.
0: Ridiculous. <laughs> it yeah, was ridiculous. Could, I think everybody think, yeah, ridiculous. We think that. But you've got to think, these are like old-timers that go way back to those days when people this were doing things like that, right? Bugs were a right? thing in
2: those days. Yeah, yeah they know. Yeah. But they were. Yeah. yeah. No, people did. Sur- I think the thing about that particular case was Marilyn Maryland being involved because Maryland is notoriously anti-tech. She couldn't even figure out how Wait, to find Maryland McCrone, uh, 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 okay. the, the mother-in-law, and uh, and this was in the, this was in nineteen ninety-eight nine. So, and the idea of her planting a bug anywhere was kind of comical because <laughs> she could. To this day, Marilyn's not technically savvy. Anyway, through that whole course of uh, communication, I got to know the Newton family especially. And right at the end of that, when they decided to settle out of court, they uh, uh, Wayne was offered a deal at the Stardust through Bill Boyd and Boyd Gaming and everything. And so I covered that opening and his announcement and all of that. And then in December of uh, 99, on, on New Year's Eve in 99, we arranged for me to spend that particular New Year's Eve with Wayne and write a fly-on-the-wall story, which was epic. That whole thing led me, it, it really pushed me into covering entertainment primarily. So you were primarily. writing
0: full-feature articles then, mm-hmm. right, as opposed to just reporting on entertainment. Right. Which is mostly what you do now. Yeah,
2: yeah it was. It would be like I would – a typical week yeah. would be like I'd write a story about businesses that did, did singing telegrams. And then I would write an, a really entertainment-related story about strolling performers at uh, around Las Vegas when MGM Grand still had its theme park. And, and when the statues uh, and Mar- St. Mark's yeah. Square opened up, I did a story about a human statue that happened to be – joe trammell um oh, really? seriously that's how i met joe wow. and then i would write a story about how to prevent ant infestation and then there would be you know something else out yeah. there and uh, you know how people uh, the the balloon club of las vegas so you know people who like to to be in hot air balloons so i was covering everything really um you know charity uh, ventures and uh, uh i would interview the odd political figure every once in a while and and but the thing with newton made me realize that um the fact that he spent so much time with me got a lot of a, a, a entertainers' attention because God, they, you know, because I wasn't really known to be an entertainment writer, but they said, "Geez, that's pretty impressive." And so other entertainers started to get to allow me to get in and, and tell their stories. Like I started I talked to Carrot Top, for example, when he was still in the in the MGM Grand and, you know, people like that and I just started moving along, you know. And uh and pretty soon I was uh you know Gordy Brown and uh you go on on Danny Gans in those days and uh Clint Holmes and uh, you know all the all the the crew who were Bob Anderson who was in town at the time. I started doing stories about them and then pretty soon Became that I should make entertainment my hub and then come off that. And it took a few years to get to that point. You know, probably, you know, I was an editor for about eight years too, so I didn't have a whole lot of bylines in that period of time as an arts and entertainment editor. But that's how it was an evolution. It wasn't a direct
1: step in, you know. Do you end up feeling blessed or cursed with this? Because you're like at every cool event, your face is there, right? (laughs) Like every single time. Now, I got to think that that's pretty awesome to be able to see everything that's happening in town all the time being like, literally in the in the pits all the time but on the flip side if you're not there like there's kind of this expectation that you've got to be around at every single event
2: yeah I think well as, as far as I, I will never complain about that world I love it I love watching people do their art. I can never get to enough things. It's hard to, the only complaint I really have about any of it is hard to keep organized because there's so much. And when, when Las Vegas is really going, there's so much going on. Uh, so that's my only quibble is just trying to keep everything straight. But I think that there is an expectation, like if I go to, um, if I go see a, a particular show on a night when there's another particular show going on. Yeah. The, the, the other particular show that I didn't make it to might say has, yeah, and they, they have said something.
0: They find out you the other one. Yeah, you come here, and right? I, okay. it's like
2: obvious that I'm at the other particular show because I have been uh, doing social media about the other particular show. And uh, the, uh, there is that. There is a little bit of. Um, um, yeah, you know, uh, uh, I would say competition about how to do help different shows of the same scale receive coverage. Yeah. and you, uh, once in a while I will get you know, um, hey, you were at that show, why don't you come over and see me? You know, and uh, and it's just a matter of you got to notify me in advance. You please let me know, and I can do two or three things in a night. But that's that's the only concern yeah
0: i've gotten different things and i see you at one then mm-hmm. i'll see you at the next We've seen and each like, it's got to be hard too because you you've got to be honest with your reviews and i would think some shows take it or some people take it personally too yes i mean
2: yeah well it's I, that's another thing that's had to, had to evolve over the years i don't i'm not a full-time critic that's one thing and no, no, my company doesn't want me to be a full-time critic because to be a full-time critic you pretty much have to be that and nothing else. You couldn't be a full-time critic and give your honest assessment in a graded uh, format, you know, like letter grades or stars or numbers. Um and, and still be able to effectively have the kind of relationships you have with entertainers that you enjoy if you're not a critic. So, you know, you might be a headliner in Las Vegas. I might go see your show. Let's say you're a headliner in Las Vegas and you have an opening night. And before the show, I, I, I talk to you and visit you and, and we talk about your show and I do a story, a column, write a column or a story about, about what you're doing. Then I turn around and go into the show and I watch the show. And let's say I hate the show. Now, <laughs> the this could be compl- this could be uh, problematic sure it could be complicated because if i go through and if i were writing a graded review and say you know this star sh- show wasn't ready for the stage it would you know there was a lot of the, you know it was loose it should it should have been you know tabled for 2 weeks for these reasons the dancers were not right the lighting was off the cues were off the sound cut out it wasn't ready for the las vegas stage after having just written about this in a completely different manner it's it's a cross-signal to your readers, it could be, and it's a cross-signal to your contact, too, who you're trying to, you know, who you're trying to generate and tr- or, or maintain a relationship with. So i found that it's the best thing for me to do is stay in voice and and cull all the cool stuff in Las Vegas, be straightforward when things aren't going right, and just and move it forward that way. And less, um, there's less, probably, opinion about quality of performance in my column and more what is going on on the scene and write it in a a kind of a stylish way without... We don't do grades yeah to and, and to be fair
0: on that kind of stuff to to when a show first opens usually it's not like the hard opening to the public and everything mm-hmm. and it, there's going to be issues there's going to be problems i try not to judge any show i see by if i'm going on like the original the opening op- yeah the preview mm-hmm. opening night yeah, that's classic and mm-hmm. then you come i'll come back like a few months later and take a look and see where they've gotten because really a lot of shows it's hard to work out the kinks without having a live audience So, yeah. Yeah,
2: Yeah, no, I get that. And I I usually adhere to that. I like to see a show open in the soft opening anyway, just for my own meter. And I've done this with pretty much all of them. I mean, all the major shows I've seen open in previews, just to have an idea, just to have in my mental bank that, like, how far a show has come. That's important to know. Not to review it in real time, but I'll tell you, like, uh, Absinthe, I saw a soft opening. Uh, Opium, uh, more recently, Atomic Saloon show in Edinburgh. I saw it open there. I saw one that really stands out to me is um, Vegas, show over at Saks Theater. I saw the very first performance of that, and that show was so rushing to get to the stage that when I went in, you could still uh, you could smell the wet paint yeah. on the <laughs> sets and I just really remember how that cast rose to the occasion and did the show they, they were great the cast, the first cast Vegas show has always been but especially then was very talented Eric Jordan Young came out and he was the first you know and I could see the look on his face like okay <laughs> We're on, huh, yeah. it was like it was that attitude it was like, okay, you know, there we like, go, <laughs> the shining of the wet. he's paint. such a pro, and, though yeah, and and if you got Eric Jordan Young opening the show and I'm remembering that too, this was a while ago i'm thinking I was watching him do the uh, the Ernie the janitor character, and um uh I was thinking that the show was going to be okay because of the way it opened and the way it formed, and I didn't write uh from that particular performance, but Vegas, the show is still going on. And uh, the the mechanics of it and the the format of it have worked out over years, but that's an example of one. Yeah. You know, I saw I saw all the Broadway shows when they were here, open, soft opening, and Circ, You know, all of
0: that as a too. performer, it's always hard to know if somebody relationship wise if they. Actually, like you for you, or they like you because of the power of the performer. Mm-hmm. Do you have that problem sometimes? Knowing if people just want to be your friend because of who you are and what you might be able to do for them, as opposed to true friendships. How do you sort that out?
2: I, I think, um, you know, I think that's a, I think that's an issue with everything, all of us, and who are yeah. in the entertainment ecosystem. I think we all have that kind of, you know, if I were, and uh, if if I were wearing another. <laughs> if I were in another role, if I were wearing another costume in this show, would I be, uh, you know, as uh, treated the same way? The answer is no. I, I'm sure that um, there's a there's an element of um, they want to be flattered by me or or uh, have attention in the column. There's that's a professional uh, concern, and I understand that. I always understand that going in. Um, I've developed some really good friendships in entertainment in Las Vegas, but there have been, you know, and there are a few that um, want to be professionally close to me for the reason because it benefits their show if I write about it and give them attention so I I guess there's no simple answer to it It, I think it's a universal concern in entertainment you know
0: you see, I know how you love entertainment, right? But there are like, even like, you take a look at Elvis. There's whole generations who have no clue who Elvis mm-hmm. is other than seeing these guys dressed up as Elvis. And it's like, to them, it's sort of a cartoon. They don't get...
1: He's turned into Mickey Mouse?
0: Yeah, in a way, right? And and unfortunately, yeah. that's also happening to a few people who are still alive as well in this town, who mm-hmm. are icons, who made this town. How do you feel about that? Well,
2: I think it's, uh, I think it's uh, part of the cycle of, of the entertainment and, and entertainment culture you know when yeah. elvis was um you know when, when elvis was uh, big in las vegas might, there might have, might have been uh, people who had a, a real deep appreciation for glenn miller or the you know some of the al jolson or some of the entertainers who came before him who did they might not have known yeah you know who that was i think we hold on to our icons longer in this current uh, culture than we used to. Do you think I that? think so. Like, I think Elvis is... I mean, Elvis has been not... Elvis died in 1977, and he's st- uh, even though his popularity has waned, he's still a, a, a known figure. And I don't know when Elvis died in 1977 if we were reaching back 60, 70 years and still trying to evoke the memories of the of the performers of Laurel and Hardy and still doing shows that paid tribute to Laurel and Hardy in Las Vegas. I I, th- I think that the thing with Elvis in that particular case, is it's it's hard not to caricature him uh, and keep his memory alive because so much of him was a, a, a suited character anyway. You know, when you when Elvis walked out, the, the, the depiction of Elvis you see visually is pretty accurate. You know, I mean, the jumpsuits and the whole look, you know, people have caught that. And if you don't have that, if you don't have that as your entry point, you don't know who Elvis is at all. But that's yeah. Elvis promoted that himself i have a friend
0: who's an elvis impersonator and yeah yeah. (laughs) (laughs) well no my point is though is uh we were doing some resorts down in mexico and he left one of his belts that went with one of his outfits at one resort he's like i gotta go get that tonight i have to go get it because i've got to wear that tonight i'm like but you have these other belts elvis didn't wear that with that outfit even though and i'm like yeah but nobody's gonna know he's like People will yeah, know. The Elvis people will. They will know. The Elvis people will know. Yeah. And they do know. Mm-hmm. It's amazing,
2: right? Yeah, they'll pick it apart. Yeah, yeah. down to the
0: button, down to everything. That's like, the yeah.
2: truth. The Elvis fans are, are very hardcore. I've judged a couple of these uh, the Elvis tribute artist co- uh, competitions down on Fremont Street years ago, including the one where uh, uh, Justin Shander won here, and he went on to win in Memphis. He won the international competition too. And I was up there on the dais with uh, Linda Thompson... Who was dated Elvis and in, in near the end, close to the end of his life, and, and during his days in Las Vegas. And Sam Thompson, who was part of his uh, security detail here in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. They were judges with me. And uh, we had one more, um, oh, the guy who did Michael Jackson in Legends was also uh, Damian Brantley. He was the other judge. <laughs> this was the lineup. And uh, I was just watching all, this is two years of this, I was just watching all these Elvis tribute artists, and I'm like, I told Sam, I'm like, I don't need to see any more of this, man. I, I, can't, I can't believe one individual sparked so many different adaptations. But he did say that, uh, he goes, the, the ones who were really good, like the, the winners that we had for two years in a row, he goes, they, they understand the, the look. And and he did say to one guy, he goes, I like the light blue suit that you wore because the, the, the guy referred to his last show that he ever did in Indianapolis at Market Square Arena. And he said, "This is about how Elvis was at the end of his career." And and Sam knew. He goes, "That light blue suit is an exact replica." Of they the get so them
0: made by the same people that yeah, made and, Elvis's
2: stuff. And, and, and yeah, that is some serious attention to detail. And uh, you know, I think the people who are still into Elvis are really into Elvis. I'm buddies with you know, Big Elvis, you know, down at uh, <laughs> yeah. Pete Valley, yeah, out down at Harris and and Jesus, he, I mean, that place is packed yeah. for him. It's an open show, free show, but, God, it's just slammed every time I go down there. Yeah. So there's still a place for Elvis somehow. I just don't think you can be, build a – my thing about Elvis, I'll close it with this, is you can't build a big production show with him at the center and guarantee you're going to make money. Yeah. Heartbreak Hotel tried to do that with the with the, the show over at Harrah's. Uh, Viva Elvis, we know that would happen with the Cirque uh, partnership. It's just hard to get a, a large-scale Elvis show out there because of the – because of the very thing you brought up
0: you've you probably heard so many elvis stories like from different entertainers because mm-hmm. it seems like every entertainer that's all time has an elvis story what's your
2: favorite
1: i think um i'm spending a lot of time on elvis well well, okay, we'll move on <laughs> you know but I
0: just, it, yeah. <laughs> it is vegas
2: I, I my favorite uh, the one that really springs to mind maybe it was just because we just mentioned Tony Orlando but it was uh, Tony Orlando and Don uh, very early in their career right when they first hit uh, played the lounge at the uh, at the Las Vegas Hilton now the lounge at the Hilton was a thing six hundred people at the lounge in the at the Hilton and it was down from the uh, International Theater as you walk I th- I I can't. I think it was on that right side as you walk into the the main valet. Sounds like so, sounds,
0: sounds like the same setup they have at South Point for the comedy, yeah, uh, the night late mm-hmm. night midnight comedy thing.
2: Yeah, right, and it's it's a, a, but a very big venue now. In the lounge at the at the Las Vegas Hilton, Chuck Berry played the lounge. The Righteous Brothers played the lounge. I mean, you know, and Tony Orlando and Don with a top ten hit, play the lounge. And <laughs> Tony Orlando said he was playing the lounge, and he goes he goes we were up there singing because i didn't know what was happening because but, but the whole crowd turned and started moving to his right and then they started moving to his left and he goes all everybody because my whole crowd my whole audience was moving and he's, he's he goes i looked out there and it was elvis and elvis was trying to watch our show <laughs> you know? the whole like an amoeba walking around because he, he goes i understood what the power of elvis presley was that night because <laughs> they the Tony Orlando and yeah. I were pretty famous. That was a good one. My, my yeah. buddy Frank Lieberman actually um, interviewed Elvis, and uh, that was rare because uh, I've talked about this on uh, Instagram Live the other night. Re- Elvis didn't do very many uh, uh, interviews, and uh, Frank was a freelance uh, journalist and PR guy, and after the interview, um, Elvis gave him one of his TCB necklaces. Uh, that was a pretty cool story. Um, God, there are a lot. There are really a lot. There was a time Sam told me that he and uh, he and Elvis went into the lounge, lounge to see Chuck Berry, and uh, they walked in. It was the same thing, you know, all this craziness. And Chuck Berry goes, "Hey, I know who you are." Elvis says, "I know who you are too. You invented this music." Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was a it was a different era. Yeah. That was Vanicek's brain.
0: Please support the show by subscribing, sharing it with friends, and leaving a positive review on iTunes. It goes a long way. For more information or to connect by social media, visit banachek.com. Thank you for listening.
1: If you haven't already heard, Banachek just launched his Patreon page, uh, which is there to really pay for the bandwidth on the show, make sure that we can keep coming out with these episodes for you uh, of the podcast. And it's a great way, especially if you're a magician and want kind of the inside track on what's going on. You want some of his magic. You want the new products. Uh, as they arrive, and you want the the behind-the-scenes stuff for this podcast, that's the place to go. Uh, So that's at patreon.com forward slash Banachek. We would love to see you there, and we would really appreciate your support. You know what's ironic? Mm. I don't know if
0: ironic's the right word.
1: Because ironic has its own
0: little subtleties, but it's even paying for this.
1: It is. It's (laughs) paying for this right now. It's paying for this commercial. This commercial. yeah. And one of the benefits is you can get these podcasts commercial-free. So head over to patreon.com forward slash Banachek.